Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. And Happy New Year. It's a new year. It's a time of new beginnings. It's a time where many of us began a new Bible reading plan. Mine started on January 1st, and I started in Genesis chapter 1. So I've already made my way through much of Genesis, but uh, found myself in that strange chapter in Genesis 19, where Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed, and God tells Lot to leave with his family, and he tells his family in verse 17, escape now for your life, don't look behind you, don't look back, leave, don't turn back. You guys know the story, Lot's wife turns back and she is punished for that, turns into a pillar of salt. I don't know if you've ever felt that feeling before of wanting to turn back. Maybe you have a a new job and you think, man, the old job was better. Maybe it's a new house and you think the old house, the old neighborhood was better. Maybe it's a new relationship and you think the old relationship was better. I just wish I could go back. There's a great account in history of a man named Cortez in the 1500s. And this account is familiar to many of you of uh, Cortez burning the ships that took them to the new world and It's chronicled in a a song by my favorite Christian artist, Stephen Chris Chapman. He says this, In the spring of 1519, a Spanish fleet set sail. Cortez told his his sailors that this mission cannot fail. On the eastern shore of Mexico, they landed with great dreams, but the hardships of the new world made them restless and weak. So quietly they whispered, Let's sail back to the life we knew. But the one who had led them there was saying, Let's burn the ships. We're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. So let's burn the ships. We've passed the point of no return. Our life is here. So let's let the ships burn. And then he turns that beautiful analogy into one of faith for us. In the spring of our new beginnings, a searching heart sets sail looking for a life that's new and a love that would not fail. On the shores of grace and mercy, we landed with great joy. But there was an enemy who was waiting to steal, kill, and destroy. Quietly, he whispers, just go back to the life you knew. But the one who led us here is saying, burn the ships. We're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. Burn the ships. We've passed the point of no return. Our life is here. So let the ships burn. Nobody said it would be easy, but the one who brought us here is never going to leave us alone. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are wrestling with this question, should we go back? They were born Jewish, they were involved in Judaism, and then they converted to Christianity. They believed in Jesus as Messiah. But then persecution sprang up, chapter 10, verse 32 and 30. 3 and 34 tell us that they are heavily persecuted. People are in jail. People have been killed for believing in Jesus. And they're asking the question, is this what God has for us? Why would God allow this? It was much easier when we were just Jewish people and not Jewish Christians. After all, we, we kind of believe in the same God. So can't we just go back? Just We'll stop being Christians and we'll just go back to Judaism. That pleases God. And they struggled with the 
the thought of going back. And the author of this letter to the Hebrews is pleading with these people, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to that religion, that way of life. Yes, it's comfortable. Yes, it's familiar. But don't go back. And he gives them five warnings in this letter of why they shouldn't go back because judgment will happen if they do. And he also gives them many more promises of what they will lose if they leave. This is what you have if you stay. This is what you have in Christ. So let's read the second of these five warnings in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So please take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, and with whom he was angry for forty years? It was, not, was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, let us fear If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. We have believed, we who have believed entered that rest, just as he has said, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in that passage, they will not enter my rest. Therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Because the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, I pray that these words would go forth from this pulpit in a way that your spirit would cause them to fall on good soil that is ready to hear the reality of the great high priest and that you would comfort us. There are warnings and there are promises. And as we stare at the beauty of Christ this morning, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this book and that we would love Jesus, our Savior, who stands even now at the right hand of the Father, praying for us in this exact moment. So Jesus, be our help. Holy Spirit, give us illumination. And Father, be glorified in all that we do this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. Five warnings in this book. The second of these warnings is before us this morning in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. The heart of it is in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. There remains this Sabbath rest, but we must be diligent to enter it because if we don't, we might be uh, those who would fall away in disobedience. There's warnings. There's warnings all through the Bible, but there's also promises. And what I want us to look at this morning are the promises, the beauty of Jesus and what we have in Him such that we wouldn't turn back. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to Judaism because there's There's inherent judgment involved in that, but also don't go back because you'll be losing Christ. The author of Hebrews is pleading with the Jewish Christians to see that Jesus is better. That's the the whole theme of this book is Jesus is better than anything. Martin Luther says that after terrifying us with these warnings, the apostle now comforts us with the promise of Christ and the beauty of Jesus. He's better than anything. And as a good Jewish person would do. He's trying to show that Jesus is better than all the things that Judaism loves and claims as their own. Jesus is better than angels, chapter 1. He's better than Moses. He's better than Moses, chapter 3. Jesus is better than Joshua. These are solid pillars in Judaism, and the author of Hebrews says he's better than all of them. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the temple. He's better than Aaron. And he's better than the office that Aaron held. The priesthood, even the high priest himself, Jesus is better than the high priest. Verse 14, I want to spend our time looking at verses 14 through 16. But you see in verse 14, we have a great high priest. Literally, it's a great, great priest. There was a high priest, a great priest on the earth. Many people held that office. One time, one at a time would hold it. But here, the author of Hebrews says, there's one greater that supersedes all of them. He's better than all of them. And in fact, he doesn't just stand over them as better, but still one of them. He stands over them as better and makes all of those other priests and the earthly office of the priesthood completely obsolete. There are many jobs in the world that have come and gone. Uh, We watched Mary Poppins Returns and the lamp lighters. We don't see lamp lighters anymore. The lamps just turn on. The street lights, I don't know if there's some person pushing a button and that job's gone now too and now it's just computers doing the job, but there's no more lamp lighters. 
This is something called occupational obsolescence, obsolete. It's turned this occupation into an obsolete thing. It's no longer in existence. It happens everywhere. If you want to know who it happens to a lot, just ask horses, right? They had jobs and they are gone. They used to run everybody around all over the place. Uh, and then we had cars and tanks and we have all sorts of other things that have taken their place. There's no more telegraph operators. Nobody's at that switchboard anymore, switching around. There's no milkman. I don't know about you, I don't get my milk from a milkman. That job is gone. And even if that job were still in existence, that job would have changed because it's no longer milkman. It would be an almond milkman. <laughs> and I don't, still don't know how they get milk from almonds. I've, I've tried squeezing them very hard and it doesn't work. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4 gives us the ultimate occupational obsolescence. The priesthood on earth is gone. No more priests. Now, in our Protestant mindset, we go, yes, no more priests because we don't need a priest. We have to be careful. We desperately need a priest. We just don't need an earthly priest that's here on earth that is our intercessor here. But we need a high priest, and we have a high priest, not one who's merely human, but human and God, not one here on earth only, but in heaven as well. We need a priest, and the priest that we do have, Jesus Christ, his high priestly work is essential if we're going to finish the race that we have with the Lord in perseverance. If we're going to reach the end and cross that finish line well, and persevere and not go back, we need Jesus, our great high priest. We don't persevere in our own strength. We need to work, but we don't work so that we can make it to the end. God is the one that's working to keep us, to hold us. The reason any Christian will persevere is because Jesus faithfully holds him or her and faithfully fulfills his dual priestly work. He had a one-time act as our high priest of atoning for us, and now he has an ongoing act of interceding for us. Chapter 7, verse 24 says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's our great high priest. He's better than any high priest ever was. Now why? How? How is he better? I want to give you four reasons in these three verses uh, that Jesus is better than any high priest ever was. Four glorious truths that distinguish Christ as better than any other high priest. Number one, in verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We'll say it this way. Jesus has done what no other high priest could do. Jesus has done what no other high priest could do. He's better than any high priest because he has done what no other high priest could do. Namely, he has passed through through the heavens. Priests were the guards over worship, not in the sense of singing necessarily, but in the sense of sacrifice. They were the ones that made all the sacrifices before God. They were the ones that were the intercessors between God and man. And the high priest was the greatest of those intercessors. And on the day of atonement, one day a year, he would go in through the outer court, through the holy place, into the holy of holies. He'd pass through all those places. And he would pass through and he would make atonement before God. 
He would do so wearing that ephod. You've probably seen pictures of it before. It was a breastplate with three stones going across and four stones going down. So 12 stones total that all had uh, the names of the tribes of Israel. So he would wear the names of the tribes of the people that he was going to intercede on behalf of before the Lord. He'd wear them close to his heart. And then on his shoulders in this ephod, he had two onyx stones. And on uh, these two onyx stones would be placed on his shoulders. And on each of these stones, six of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were placed. So he had all the tribes on his heart, close to his heart, and he had all the tribes on his shoulders. He was burying the tribes before God. Jesus is better than that, not because he wore a better ephod. No, Jesus was stripped of all of his clothing at the cross. He was nailed to a cross, and on that cross, he bore our sin close to his heart. And he bore us on his shoulders on the cross. Jesus is better, but he didn't stay dead. He died on the cross in our place, and then he rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven, and he passed through the heavens. So when you hear pass through, the Jewish people would think pass through in a sense of the high priest passing through the holy place and into the holy of holies. Jesus did so much better. He passed through the heavens. He died on earth. He rose from the dead and he passed through the heavens, not just a curtain on earth, but through the heavens themselves and lived to tell of it. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. He passed through not into the holy of holies in an earthly temple. He passed through into heaven itself. When the high priest would pass through the veil to go into the holy of holies, sewn into their garments were these little pomegranate bells that would ring as he would walk. And they were there because if the high priest was sinful before the Lord and had not cleansed himself through sacrifice on his own behalf, he would die. He would enter into God's presence, a holy God, with sin, and sin must be destroyed in the presence of God. And so they wove these bells into the ends of uh, the clothing so that they would jingle as he would go through. And if they ever stopped ringing, you would know this man has died. Jesus passes through the heavens, doesn't have to wear bells, and doesn't just do a work and comes back out. The high priest would enter in and, and leave as quickly as they could. It wasn't a place where you sat down. If you read through Numbers, you read through Leviticus, you see a description of the tabernacle. Nowhere in the description of the tabernacle, and it is incredibly precise about how the tabernacle is supposed to be set up, nowhere in that description is a description of a bench or a chair that's supposed to be placed in the Holy of Holies where the high priest can go in and sit down and hang out for a while. Sinners don't hang out for a while in the holy presence of God. But Jesus, when he passes through the heavens, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work is finished. The high priest, their work was never finished. Jesus' work of atonement on the earth was finished. He paid for sin once and for all. He's accomplished perfectly what all other priests could only prefigure. So he's better than any high priest ever was because he has done what no other high priest could do. Bear the sins of his people on himself, take away the penalty, live again, and now pray for them. He's done what no other high priest could do. He's passed through the heavens. Number two, he is what no other high priest could be. He is what no other high priest 
could be. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Son of God is His deity. Son of means equal to. He's equal to everything that it means to be God. But Jesus is His earthly human name. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God is with us. God in a body. God is here with us. And Jesus is perfectly, 100% truly God and perfectly, 100% truly human in the exact same person. We needed both. This is why this is so important. No other high priest could do this. High priests could only be human And because they're human, they're stained with sin. And because they're human, they're not holy. And therefore, they couldn't do the work that Jesus did because they couldn't take upon themselves sin of all of the people that they were atoning for and do away with sin in their own person because they themselves are holy. We needed both. We needed a human to be our perfect substitute. This is why the lambs didn't work. This is why lambs would work only for a time because they're not a perfect substitute. This is why a perfect angel couldn't die on the cross. They're sinless, but they couldn't die for you and for me because it's not a one for one. It's not a perfect substitute. We need a human to die in our place. But if they're only human, then they would be dying for themselves. We need a human who is also 100% God, to be able to bear the penalty and the judgment for our sin. And in Jesus, we have both. Jesus, human, the Son of God, God. Truly God, truly man. This is why he's better. We use that word better all the time. This food is better than that food. This music is better than that music. This movie is better than that movie. There's subjective things. There's objective realities like the 49ers are better than the Rams. That's obvious. All God's people said amen. But nothing's better than Jesus. Everything in this book is to point us to Jesus being better than anything in the world. Everything in this book is to point us to the fact that Jesus is better than anything in the world. Everything we do in church is to point us to the fact that Jesus is better than anything in this world. Everything that we do in life is to point us to the fact that Jesus is better than anything in the world. Life itself is designed by God to show us that sin lets us down and Jesus satisfies. He's better than your former manner of life. He's better than every idol you could fashion. He's better than any fortune you could acquire. He's better than any fame you could receive. He's better than an easy life, a comfortable life. He's better than anything this world has to offer. He has done what no other high priest could do. He is himself what no other high priest could be. He's God, very God, in full humanity. Number three, he's better than a high priest because he has endured what no other high priest could endure. He has endured what no other high priest could endure. This is in verse 15. So verse 14, he's passed through the heavens. We have a great high priest and we must hold fast our confession. Don't turn away from it. Don't let it go. Why? Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This verse is massive in its implications. It's really the same thing said twice in the negative and the positive. He's not unable to do something. He's not unable to sympathize with us. And he is very able to sympathize with us. Sympathy, it's a connective word. 
compassion, empathy, desiring to be with someone, feel their pain. We have somebody in heaven who desires to feel our pain. Why? How can he do this? Because he was tempted in every way that we are. That doesn't mean he was tempted in every sin that we are tempted in. He's tempted in every category, every kind of sin that we are tempted with. Every area, every category. And he was tempted beyond our temptations. He's enduring what no other high priest could endure because every high priest before him would fight temptation, fight temptation, fight temptation, and then finally succumb to temptation. They'd fall. Jesus fought and fought and fought and fought and kept on fighting. He's endured temptations that you and I will never experience because he's endured temptations beyond the point of ever falling into them. If a temptation, if you say no to a temptation, it's failed, and the devil and all of his demons and your flesh and sinful humanity will try and find another way to make you fall. So another temptation, you say no, another temptation, a harder temptation, a more difficult temptation, a different kind of temptation. And we can withstand those temptations a certain amount of times and then we fall. And then we kind of go back to square one. Jesus never succumbed to a temptation ever. So harder, harder temptation, more difficult, more intense. And he never, ever, ever says, yes, I'll sin. And he experienced temptations that you and I will never experience because he experienced temptations about being God. You and I will never have a temptation from the devil to turn rocks into bread. We'll never have that temptation. That only happens because Satan is asking Jesus to step outside of the limitations of humanity and live in his deity alone. You and I don't have that possibility, so that's never going to be a temptation. He was tempted in every category of temptation we were to, no other, uh, to a degree that no other human has ever been tempted. And therefore, he is capable of unparalleled understanding and sympathy. You know how the world tends to say, um, if, I, if I'm struggling with alcoholism, the world tends to say, unless you are struggling with alcoholism too, then you don't know what I'm going through. You know how the world tends to say that? I'm not going to really hear your advice because you've never gone through what I've gone through. I understand what they're saying. I don't think it's very helpful. I don't think it's even true because sin is sin. I get what they're saying. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about Jesus. Oh, you wouldn't understand. Why would I talk to Jesus about this problem? Because he wouldn't understand. When you say the words, nobody understands what I'm going through, there's always one who knows exactly what you're going through. And his name is Jesus Christ. He was not impervious to temptation. Like somehow he's just Superman and temptations just bing, 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 fly off of them. I don't know about you, but when... I watch those movies, and I know this is Superman, and there's no way he can die because he's Superman. Fight scenes become incredibly boring to me. I'm like, just get on. Move on to the story because we know he can't die. <laughs> if you feel that way, and I think more of us feel that way than we like to admit about Jesus. He's Superman. So every temptation that he experiences in the Bible, well, let's move on because he's not going to sin. He can't sin. No worries. Then we miss the reality of his humanity. That's why we need to understand his humanity. That's why when John was writing in 1 John chapter 4, he's writing to people who held this view called Gnosticism, which said that human matter, flesh is bad and spirit is good. So there's no way Jesus could be uh, human because hum humanity is bad, flesh is bad, spirit's good. He only came as spiritual God. 
and he just kind of looked human, but he wasn't truly human. Listen to what John says to that. John says in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this, you will know the Spirit of God. Here's how you know what's true. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is so important to John. He's a human through and through. That's why we studied the Gospel of Mark last semester. He's fully human. He came in the flesh. Martin Luther says the right way to come to a proper understanding of Jesus Christ is to begin with his humanity. You must begin with his humanity. He's fully human. And I think because we want to make sure that we never lose any of his deity, we tend to say he's 100% God, and then we functionally live out this sense of he kind of looked like human. Like obviously we believe doctrinally he's 100% God, 100% man. But when it comes down to it, I think when we're reading, at least I know I do. Maybe you don't, but I know I do. When I read of Jesus, I just kind of skim over these difficulties that he experiences because I figure he's God. He plays the God trump card. I can't sin. This is a whole debate in theology, by the way. This is the debate called impeccability or peccability of Jesus. Impeccability. Could he not sin? Is it, was it impossible for him to sin? Or peccability, could he ever sin? Is it possible for him to sin? Let's answer that in a minute. Can God die? That's not a trick question. Can God die? Not at all. Did Jesus die? Absolutely. How did he die? He had to be 100% human. That's why he had to be born as a human. He had to live out our humanity. So can God die? No. Jesus died. He died because, yes, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% human. So in his, in his God nature... Could Jesus have died? No, that's why he became a human. In his deity, could Jesus have sinned? No. God can't sin. You know, there's many things God can't do, right? Uh, a lot of times we think, God can do anything. Well, clarify it. God can do anything that's within his nature to do. And praise God, there's things he can't do. He can't lie. He can't ever go back on his promise to you and to me. And he cannot sin. Therefore, could Jesus have ever sinned? Well, in his deity, no. But can God die? No, but Jesus died. So can God sin? No, but could Jesus have sinned? Oh, yes, he could have. Absolutely. In his humanity. In his deity? No way. In his humanity? Absolutely. And I believe, I think you can prove this biblically, that Jesus never once in the midst of temptation goes, oh, I'm struggling with temptation. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Oh, Praise God, I have the God card, and I'm out of this one. He never once did that. That's why we have a high priest who was tempted in every single way that we are in a real temptation. He's not in heaven saying, I don't get why you fall, just play the God card. Or, I'm sorry, I don't get why you fall, because I was able to play the God card, and I could never sin. He never did that. In his deity, he could never have sinned, but in his humanity, absolutely. And he fought and he fought and he fought and he won a perfect record of righteousness for you and for me. He won it. He was born of a woman. He was born in the likeness of sinful man. He hungers, he thirsts, he dies. That's why we have someone who is sympathetic to us. There's a beautiful illustration of this in the world of music. 
There's something in music called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance is amazing, and you've probably seen it before. If I were to play uh, a, a chord or a, a note on my guitar and play it close enough to Hannah's guitar, without even plucking a string on Hannah's guitar, Hannah's guitar would ring out that note. This is the physics behind uh, a tuning fork, and I don't know how that all works. Just ask Sergio. But this is the physics behind it. This even happens if you're close to a piano, and you just go, ooh, you'll hear the piano start to vibrate those. You're not plucking any, you're not playing anything, but it starts vibrating. That's something technically called sympathetic resonance, where your instrument is able to make another instrument move without touching it. That's what Jesus has for you and for me. Jesus has sympathetic resonance for you and for me. When you struggle here on earth, in heaven, your instrument here is struggling, and in heaven, his instrument is struggling right along with you. He knows what it's like to experience this. Thomas Schreiner says it this way, As a human being, Jesus knows the frailties and groanings that beset the human race. He's not a distant and aloof high priest but he himself is intimately acquainted with the human condition. Indeed, he experienced the full range of temptation. The delight and joys offered by sin were no stranger to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it brought pleasure. He understands every temptation we face because he faced something similar. Nevertheless, he never surrendered to sin's power. He shared in our weakness and frailty, but he did not, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed the will of his Father. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your frailties. He, in his humanity, is just like you and me. And so when we struggle here on earth, he feels that with sympathetic resonance in heaven. When a note of weakness is struck in your heart, he feels it in heaven. There's an amazing Puritan book uh, by a Puritan author named Thomas Goodwin called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Uh, my wife just finished this book. It's actually here, and I want to read some of it before communion. Thomas Goodwin says this, There are two things that Jesus is constantly feeling in heaven. He's still human, fully human in heaven, and there's two things he's constantly feeling and moved by when he sees us. He's moved by our sorrows, and he's moved by our sins. And most people tend to think when we're going through sorrows, Jesus is sad with us, and when we're going through sin, Jesus is angry with us. And Thomas Goodwin says that is not the case, because the anger of God as our judge was poured out on Jesus, and our nature has been changed, so there's no more punishment to fear and our nature has been changed. We are no longer naturally sinners. We've been given a new heart that loves Jesus. Therefore, Thomas Goodwin says this, when Jesus sees us in sin, he doesn't see us with anger. He doesn't see us with uh, a judgment or a condemnation. Instead, he sees us with pity. Because our nature has been changed, therefore sin is to us what sickness is to a little child lying on a bed struggling with a cold or a fever. You don't look at a child who's struggling with a cold or a fever and say, come on, get your act together. What's wrong with you? You say, well, this is a part of humanity and, and you're struggling right now and I'm, I'm going to have pity with you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to tend to you. And Thomas Goodwin says, don't view Jesus as your judge in these moments. He's your high priest who says, oh, I know everything you've been through. I know what this is like. 
and he has pity on us in the midst of our sin. Martin Luther said it this way, I will only trust God when I know that he loves me and he wants to be kind to me. You have a God who loves you and wants to be kind to you. And that's why this passage says, hold fast to him, cling to him. Don't run away from him. Don't be like Adam and Eve in your sin and say, well, we'll hide from God. No, he knows your sin. He knows what it's like to struggle, struggle with sin. He knows that. And yet he never sinned once. We don't need another sympathetic sinner as our high priest. We need a, a sympathetic high priest who never sinned. He knew what it was to be tempted and never, ever sinned. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ who leads us to victory, the forerunner paving the way to get us to God. He has endured the full force of temptation and he has overcome. There's an amazing Welsh hymn. It's a very old hymn that just embodies everything that this passage talks about. It's called, A Man There Is, A Real Man. It's by Joseph Hart. It says this, A man there is, a real man, with wounds still gaping wide, from which... Rich streams of blood once ran in hands and feet inside. Tis no wild fancy of our brains, no metaphor we speak. The same dear man in heaven now reigns that suffered for our sake. This wondrous man of whom we tell is true almighty God. He bought our souls from death and hell, the price his own heart's blood. That human heart he still retains though throned in highest bliss, and feels each tempted member's pains, for our afflictions are his. I love that. It's beautiful. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. So Jesus is better than any high priest because he has done what no other high priest could do. He is what no other high priest could be. He has endured what no other high priest could endure. And finally, verse 16, he can give what no other high priest can give Verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Of course, we can draw near with confidence because he's exactly like us, although he's completely set apart from us, never sinning once. This command to draw near to Christ will only be lived out if you know who Jesus is. You're not going to draw near to him if you think he's your judge who hates you and just wants to punish you. You're not going to draw near to him if you think that he doesn't understand what you're going through. You can approach with confidence, and there you'll find two things. You'll find mercy and you'll find grace. You'll find mercy not getting what you do deserve. You'll find grace getting something that you do not deserve. Go boldly before the throne. This is that, that word hesed in the Bible, the loving kindnesses of God. Uh, one of the best definitions I've ever heard of that word is when the one from we, whom we have no right to expect to give us anything gives us everything. When the one from whom we have no right to expect anything gives us everything. That's God to us. That's God to us through Jesus Christ. Draw near. Notice it says draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Throne is for a king. Throne is for royalty. And you and I are welcomed before the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he treats us as heavenly father. He's not king and judge over us. He treats us as heavenly father because he was king and judge over Jesus and poured out the penalty we deserve onto Christ so that he can pour out the blessing upon us. He loves us, drawn near. 
It's like when I come home from a conference or from a winter camp or summer camp. Pull in the driveway. My key starts to jingle in the lock, and I hear little feet. I hear, Dad's home, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. And I open the door, and I have a guitar and a backpack and gear and all this stuff, and I just drop it all, and I give him big hugs. I kiss him, and I fall on the ground. I'm so glad to be home. I missed you so much. I love them. Maybe when they're teenagers, they won't do that anymore, so <laughs> I'm eating that up right now. And I'm, I'm just a terrible, sinful, failing father. How much more so your heavenly father just saying, I love you, wrapping you up in his arms. We get help when we draw near to his throne. So we may receive mercy and find grace to help. I love that. You can read books. You can get tips. You can get tricks. You can get advice. You can get all sorts of things. I don't want any of it. I want help. Help me. And before God, you can get help. So I want to finish by reading a quote from a a dear pastor friend that I have. He says it this way. When you don't know anything at all, you have Jesus. When you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you have him. He's always available. He's always generous towards you. You're welcome at his throne. He will never grow tired of you. You can never wear him out. He'll never be annoyed by your presence. He lives to pray for you, to be accessible to you. And he doesn't need you to be perfect to come to him. He knows you, and he knows you're imperfect, and he himself is perfect on your behalf. You won't find apathy when you draw near to him. You won't find indifference. You won't find rejection. No, you will find mercy, forgiveness, grace, and strength. He doesn't need you to perform for him or to prove something to him. He doesn't need religious rituals. He just wants you. Don't hide from him. Draw near to him. There's nothing that you've ever done that surprises him. He knows it all. He knows you need him, and he knows that you'll fail again. And yet he pleads with you here to come boldly before his throne. He's doing that even now. These elements are him saying to us, draw near boldly. Draw near boldly before the throne of grace. Find your help. We don't come to these elements saying, God, I've cleaned myself up, and now I can partake in your family. We come to these elements saying, God, this is how you cleaned me up, because I could never clean myself up. And so I come to celebrate your cleansing work in my life and to thank you and to remember you and to follow you all the more. The author of Hebrews says, Christian, persevere. Persevere, hold fast to Christ. And then he promises here that God himself will hold you fast and give to you everything necessary to persevere. So, Come to him today, and you will not fail to end up where he is one day, because he will make it happen. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a great high priest. And now as we prepare to partake of communion together, we do so with hearts that are so grateful
that we have a great high priest. And we cling to him, admitting our need and knowing that he has paid it all. We love him. Prepare our hearts now to celebrate him all the more as we sing together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the men if they would come and distribute these elements. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you know that he has paid for all of your sins and you have trusted in his finished work at the cross for salvation, you're not trusting on your own religious efforts, you're not trusting in your own goodness, then these elements are for you to celebrate the work that Jesus has done. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you do not know with confident assurance that Jesus is your perfection and that you would go to heaven um, when you die, then just let these elements pass you by. And please do not leave here today until you talk with somebody and ask them, how can I make things right here now? trust in the one who did all the work on my behalf. Once you have these, let's hold them together and sing, and then we will take these elements together. Before the